And now, coming to you live from the Grishin Room, high above a freshly poured glass of red wine, it's Jonathan Strong and Gary K. Wolf with the Cushy Podcast. And we're back at the at the beginning of the holiday season, or in terms of, um, of Thanksgiving here in the states. After that part of the season, it's a, it's a, I guess it's the time of year when everybody starts thinking of end of the year lists, best of the year lists. Uh, I would like to see a most middling of the year list. I'd like to see a list of, a list of books that are okay, don't have too high expectations, and you won't be disappointed. I could make up a list like that. Nobody wants a most, okay, nobody who isn't a complete evil bastard wants a most mediocre. I didn't say mediocre. I said yes, you were kind of world. most middling. You did. That's well, kind of okay. mediocre. Did you see that um, our friend and colleague Adam Roberts named his Best science fiction and fantasy book of 2020 for The Guardian just the other I've day. Not, I've not seen that yet. I'll take a look at it. What, he, what's on he, his list? What he named names? The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, More mm-hmm. New by Alex Phoebe, The New Wilderness by Diane Cook, King of the Rising by Kaysen Callender, who I believe won the Clark this year, the first book in the I think series, so, yes. And War of the Maps by. And I, the, 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 of the far, those five, the three that I've read would all be on my top list as well. Mm hmm. Oh, yes. I'm not at all surprised at the Ministry of the Future. The, the uh, War of the Maps, since it's still not out in the States, I don't know if it's out in Australia or available there, but. Um, well, actually, it the, is, Gary. The problem is that it's only available as an ebook from Amazon because that's the only market it's got. So it's actually out in the oh, States. Okay. It just doesn't um, look out in the States. And if anybody were to go to a bookstore, they couldn't find it, unfortunately. Well, what interests me is um, I would have ex- what I would have expected to be on Adam's list would have been. The Sunken Land Begins to Rise Again, the M. John Harrison novel, which is one of the most, I mean, it's an interesting thing because looking at it as science fiction or looking at it as anything other than a Mike Harrison novel uh, confuses the issue. It it, it may be science fiction. It may have elements of fantasy in it. It may be dystopian, uh, but it's intensely character-driven and character-based. And I find when I start thinking back on the year, before I make up lists, before I look at what I've reviewed, I start thinking of things that stick with me, and there are elements of that novel that I find myself puzzling out months after having read it. Yeah. Um, it's just a really intelligent and, and provocative novel, and it's uh, it, it won the, I forget the name of the prize, it, something like a 10,000-pound prize. Yeah, it did. Um, so it's, um, it's clearly getting a great deal of uh, literary attention. Whether it's getting any kind of uh, sales as a result of any of this, I have no idea. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, because I, I have a partial answer of sorts of my own. If you were going to put together a Cood Street seasonal gift guide, because after all, Black Friday has come and gone, Cyber Monday awaits, and Cood Street is, is, is not exactly a blessed relief from having to shop or be advertised to, but doesn't do too much of it, I hope. What would be your gift suggestion for someone looking to buy a gift for the science fiction, fantasy, horror, or relatednessness in their lives? Well, one of these things is going to, the first, and literally the first thing that comes to mind uh, is going to embarrass you because it's the Book of Dragons, because it's gorgeous. The finished book has beautiful artwork, it has beautiful stories, and it, it looks like a gift book. It looks like the sort of thing that you would, uh, you know, unwrap and say, this is really nice, as opposed to a lot of dust jackets that are less attractive than that. So that has to do with the appearance as well as the content. Another one I would think of would be the Vandermeer's Big Book of uh, for somebody who was vaguely interested or had some interest in the sort of things that I read and write about, 
that's kind of a, a it's it's a broad ranging. Uh, it makes cultural arguments for internationalism and uh, and, and multiculturalism and fantasy, uh, but it's 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 the big sort of gift item book of the year. And then of course there are um, well, next. I was going to say the honeycomb thing is not going to be out until March or something. But isn't the doesn't Charles Vess have a book out of uh, uh, which is already sold out of Neil Gaiman's something? There? there is an ah. insanely deluxe edition of Stardust, which has additional right. art by Vess, which I think both of them were talking about because they finally received their copies. But I think they sold out six months ago, and they were, I mean, even the cheapest one was hundred and twenty-five pounds or more. One of the things I've been curious about, and you may have seen emails or notices or, or, or things getting dropped into your Facebook page about this, is somebody has made a kit out of Dracula, um, original oh. documents and, uh, and evidence. Nice. It's one of these evidence boxes. These things were popular for a while, I think, in the 30s. Um, so basically, all the documents in Dracula and various other things are in this box, of which, the, of which I believe that uh, the economy edition is $400. Mm-hmm. And I think they're doing something similar. So if you have if you have a lot of money and somebody who is absolutely insane about wanting to own every aspect of either uh, Frankenstein or Dracula, I suppose that's a possibility. Okay. Uh, what would your choice of gifts be? Well, I would I would start with if you have a person in your life who loves fantasy, horror, weird, dark fiction, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. and maybe has a taste for short stories and you're willing to go out and do something impressive because this would impre- be impressive, you mm-hmm. could jump onto the PS Publishing website, pspublish.co.uk, and you could order the trade paperback edition for £45 of Robert Shearman's We All Hear Stories in the Dark. It's a remarkable collection of 101 stories laid mm-hmm. out as an almost a thousand and one Arabian Nights kind of thing, though with this sort of I think very moving and, uh, and touching idea that first of all the protagonist that surrounds these stories has been told that if he can, you know, his wife has died recently. If he can read the stories in the right order, he will. His wife will get his wife back. But oh. at the end of every, but at the end of every story, uh, Shearman has very carefully laid out five or six options of where you could go next, much in a you know sort of choose your own adventure kind of mode. So you uh-huh. could, I mean, nobody will read this book exactly the same. Almost nobody will ever read it. And it's this big three-volume thing, so it's a very impressive-looking gift. I've the seen paperbacks are, yeah. are quite reasonably priced. If you're in the UK, there's every chance you could get it to a loved one. Now. You know, be the person who, who surprised them. So I would huckster for that one pretty hard as a beautiful object uh, and as something that would be surprising and memorable. No one will forget getting, you know, three and a half feet of Robert Shearman stories onto, onto the... That's certainly true, and you mentioned PS, which does put out attractive editions, uh, and one of the other attractive editions they had, which I would... Um, okay, it's interesting to think of gift lists. Gift lists of somebody who's literate, who knows um, a lot of mainstream fiction, who understands what modern fiction is like, but doesn't read much fantasy. Didn't PS have an edition of Jeffrey Ford's latest collection? Yeah, the, the best of Jeffrey, uh, which came out at the very beginning of the... And I think if you would jump onto the PS website, they have this Black Friday special thing going right now. If uh-huh. we get this podcast out in time, uh, and you could pick it up for a reasonable price, and it's a great book. It, and it will precede his new collection coming out for Small Beer next year. Right, now, and it, that's what I mean. It's a good introduction to... Um, to a writer that many people may not know. And, and the same thing is true of the Robert Sherman, because I guess uh, that uh, even though Rob has written some astonishing st- and before that, I guess, some astonishing TV episodes, uh, I don't think he's that well-known in the States. And I think that uh, getting 
a lot of his stuff at once would impress people. I think the same thing's true with Jeff Ford. Same thing's true with, um, you know, it's, it's something that comes up with me a lot. Uh, recommend something for me because I don't like what you read. <laughs> wow. Actually, I was going to say, if I was going to recommend something for the science fiction reader, there are two things I would recommend. Mm -hmm. The first thing I would re recommend is my own personal favorite science fiction uh, novel of the year. And I would say that if the reader you know likes serious, thoughtful, literary science, or in fact just likes serious, thoughtful literature and is concerned about the world around them, it doesn't have to be science fiction mm -hmm. because the book doesn't pitch that way. As you've already guessed, the book I would recommend be The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, which only just came out, but is in bookstores all around the world. The other thing I'd recommend, a box set is always a very impressive gift. You know, I still have box sets I was given as a child of, the, you know, the Earthsea books, that kind of thing. Mm. And if you've got someone who loves science fiction but maybe doesn't really want to have to confront 2020 head-on at every single moment, and it's fair to say the Ministry for the Future confronts 2020 at every single page. Yes, it does. Um, I think you could go for the Murderbot Diaries, possibly one of the most recommended things on the Coot Street podcast all year long, which mm -hmm. has been neatly popped into a... A uh, box set that gets you the first four novellas at a reasonable price. And if you have a digital reader in your life, you get them in that format as well. And they are funny and wry. Terrific reading. Everybody seems to love Murderbot. There's an, a novel that follows it, a new story next year. So there's that. That would be my science fiction. Let me add one for fantasy because uh, I've got friends who – I can literally think of people who like historical fiction, uh, who like Americana, and who – probably wouldn't read something if they thought it was being conceived of as fantasy. But the one I'm thinking of now is, is Alex Harrow's The Once and Future Witches. Second novel, I certainly would have recommended her first novel. But when I think about it, for the, for the non-fantasy reader, the second novel is perhaps more accessible, uh, more grounded in history, admittedly an alternate history, full of enjoy full of the joy of writing. It's full of little jokes, of little puns, of little changing all of... Uh, the, the, the Western history of fairy tales and folk uh, legends from, from men to women. Uh, and it, but apart from that, it's, it's a great kind of uh, story which feels so much like a historical thing. And historical readers can pick out the Easter eggs that are in the, for them. Absolutely. And I think that Orbit Red Hook did a lovely job with the book. So it will mm -hmm. make a handsome gift under a Christmas tree. Uh, Mordieu, which is probably more accessible to people in the UK right now because the tour edition is to appear, that'll be a 2021 title for, uh, in, in the United States. If you have a reader who's into that, the Gormenghast end of fantasy, that would be the book you know I would strongly recommend. I mean, there are other titles that are very popular right now. I mean, I, I would actually also recommend quite strongly uh, By Force Alone by Levi Tidhar for the fantasy reader. Mm -hmm. If they are into young, brash, violent fantasy, I think that would be a, a, a smashing gift, as would a pairing of A Little Hatred and the new book in the series um, by Joe Aber Abercrombie. Those two novels. And you can tell that right at that moment, the title of the second one just slipped out of my head. And it's... Uh, Trouble the, with uh, Peace. The Trouble, Trouble with, with Peace. peace. Would also make great gifts. Well, here's, a, here, here's another interesting question because it... Uh, not that it ever comes up. Um, if you had somebody... I, I know you read even less mainstream fiction than I do, but I read about it. And mm -hmm. the, the reason I thought of this, I'll, 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 I'll explain to you what my free association was to lead here. Because you mentioned uh, the Murderbot Diaries. And when you and I were doing these daily podcasts for over 100 days this past summer and fall, uh, among science fiction titles, I think that came up more frequently 
in your podcast and in the ones I talk to than any other title within the genre. The one that came up most frequently that was not a genre uh, would have been Hilary Mantel's uh, The Mirror and the Light. Absolutely. Third of her uh, Thomas Cromwell thing. So the question then comes, it's an impossible question to answer because I can't even answer it myself. But you have somebody who is a uh, epic fantasy reader or somebody who likes space opera and you want to recommend to them a book which is not fantasy or science fiction or space opera. That's a uh, bastard you, of a question. It, it's a bastard of a question, but uh, the, 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 the names that come up, for example, uh, among fantasy readers that you should uh, – Probably check out Dorothy Dunnett, the historical... Mm -hmm. Cecilia Holland. Cecilia Holland's historical fiction has a lot of the appeal. Uh, People who tend to like space opera tend to like Patrick O'Brien. Georgette Heyer is always highly uh, spoken of amongst the the readership circle as an author to dip into if you're going to extend your, your, your reading beyond the genre. Which, as you say, shamefully, we don't don't do enough, or I don't do enough, because of what we do for a, a living and a distraction. Well, I know one of the things I do. I'm, I'm I'm in the one like week of the month when I feel like I don't have to review, don't have to read things for local, so I can read whatever I want to. And I have a long pile of things I want to read that have nothing to do with science fiction, but that people who are into science know them very very well. Another one that comes up is, is, is George MacDonald Fraser, the Flashman novels, which I know have been favorites of one of our colleagues at Locus, Russell Letson, for years. I know that Walter John Williams knows them well. In other words, one of the things that's interesting when you begin to talk to people about what they read, which we did for a lot this year, is you find out uh, that a lot of what goes into modern science fiction and fantasy comes from other genres or from other sure. kinds of yeah. writing altogether. Which is not really logically that surprising. I mean, there's always that no, feeling that any writer who's creating has stuff that they've put into the hopper and process, and then it comes from outside of, you know, because one thing that happens, not not always, one thing that can happen is when you get someone solely reads inside the genre, it gets very recursive and closed off, even in their own, because of that lack of experience and illusion of or else broadens. Right, and there are, there are writers, I think, historically, uh, who have become so insular in terms of their own writing, or, or who... Who, who viewed, I'm, I'm thinking now of Asimov specifically, but they're, they're still contemporary writers who might fit this description. They believe their fiction is what they do for a living, mm-hmm. but what they read outside of it is almost exclusively nonfiction. Asimov, as far as I could tell from his autobiographies, read everything, but didn't really read that much other fiction. No, he, he no, read I don't Roman think he histories, did. he read science, oh, yeah. he read... Yeah. Well, I think some, I mean, you get this feeling that the, the people who are writing the stuff read it once upon a time and now are, you know, sort of caught up with the whole idea of creating their own work like that. Okay, let me ask well, you I, this. I, I, yeah. I, I think also writers move beyond uh, what they grew up with. I mean, the, the one of my favorite quotations, we, we were mentioning um, William Gibson's agency, for example. And one of my favorite quotations from Gibson was, I think it's almost, it's almost accurate that he said that uh, science fiction is a town I grew up in, but I moved out of. Yeah. Okay. Which I think I mean, is pretty much the way he feels. I think it's pretty much the way Jonathan Lethem feels. I'm sure, sure it is. Who also had a... So yes, let me ask did. you this. If you're going to recommend a gift for a younger reader, an under 20-year-old, under 10-year-old, do you have any suggestions there? An under 10-year-old? I didn't well, even know they group. existed. I mean, the, okay. you may, there aren't any under 10-year-olds. Everybody in the world is 10 years old or <laughs> okay. older. Than... I've got a trio of books to recommend. Okay. For your young adult read, Quan Barry Sticks. We write upon sticks set in Massachusetts in the late 1980s, early 1990s. A group of girls at a girls' school 
who are on a field hockey team that has always failed suddenly begin to succeed and they begin to succeed because they have a touchstone connection with a diary that has uh the face of a nine of a, of a 80s film star on it that they all had a, had uh-huh. a kind of crush on and it's smart and it's fun and it's interest really well done and i think it's a terrific uh, ya type i'd recommend for your middle grade reader who's your 10 12 year old rebecca roanhorse who had a terrific adult fantasy novel also had a t- terrific middle grade fan, Race to the Sun, which is part of Rick Riordan's uh, series, you know, Rick Riordan Presents, and it's great. And for your youngest or smallest reader, one of my highlights of the year was back in February, I went to see Neil Gaiman with his mm-hmm. uh, wife, Vanda Palmer, and he did a, a live reading of a book that has just come out just about now called Pirate Stew, which is, I think, oh. illustrated by, and is a terrific fun book. The youngest of you, uh, of your likely would also make a very as we move into the holidays. Um, it's not something that I'm familiar with because all my grandkids are um, old. No. They're they're not under ten. Well, I, I, okay, this will give you an idea because I think it is an underrated book. The one book um, that I happen to have uh, around when I had kids who were grandkids who were like seven, eight years old that they absolutely loved and wanted to hear over and over again, and it's one I don't hear much about anymore, was another Neil Gaiman book. It was The Wolves and the Walls. Yeah. Uh, with a great Dave McKee. I did, I do have one, do I have it in front of me here? Probably not. I do have one middle grade book, but I can't recommend it. I will recommend it because I trust the author a lot, Nettie Okorafor. She had a novel called Ekindu. I think it's Ekindu. I, I may be wrong about that. Yeah. Um, you can look that up. And it's 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 actually a middle grade novel. It's not a YA novel. Uh, it looks very good. It deals a lot with, uh, as far as I can tell, with questions of identity and, uh, and and fitting in and so forth. Let me let me check the title because I may actually have it wrong. It is always possible to do. Would it be Ekenka? Yes, thank you. Which came out from Viking uh, earlier in the back in August. Right, back in August. I just got a copy this week. Looks great. Can't say I've actually finished it yet, and can't say I know enough about middle grade novels to know what works and what doesn't. But I do find uh, from our friends that middle grade books, the kids are more interested in more things than I would have thought of. I mean, I would not thought of, for, for example, one of our friends of the podcast who's written middle grade books, I guess, um, is um, Alan Clages. Mm-hmm. Uh, won, won a number of awards, I think this year for a novel that came out last year, uh, Out of Left Field, about basically women's baseball in the 50s. Um, And it fascinates me because I knew vaguely about this sort of thing. It seems to fascinate little, well, I say little girls. I don't know know when you have to stop calling them little girls and start calling them young adults or whatever. But nevertheless, I'm always impressed when I get down to young adult stuff, especially in the science fiction and fantasy field. It strikes me that that's an arbitrary distinction. To Um, some degree. Well, I mean, it's, an, it's a distinction that's useful to the market. But from the point of view of science fiction readers, case in point, first two novels of um, of what what's the name of the trilogy? What would you call it? The Little Brother trilogy. It's the Cory mm-hmm. uh, Doctor. First two novels were published by Tor Teen. They were published by a, yes. an imprint designed for teenagers. The kids were in high school in the first volume, second volume, uh, Homeland. They were, I think, just out of high school or something, or, you know, uh, college age. Third volume is now out. Uh, excellent novel, by the way. Attack Cold. Surface. Okay, yeah. Attack Surface. And it's not marketed as a young adult novel at all, even though it's the same characters and they're still only a few years older. 
Um, so my guess is point A, that science fiction readers who knew that Cory Doctor was writing about important things snapped up the first two novels, whether they were considered YA or not. And mm -hmm. third, that, no, second, two points here. Second point is that those YA readers who picked up his first two novels are not going to avoid Attack Surface because it's a grown-up book. It's a third book in a trilogy. It's, it's, true. An interesting, it's true. It's an interesting example of a trilogy aging along with um, the audience, I guess. True. I have a couple of other possible gift suggestions, particularly since we've not mm -hmm. thought this through or written anything down. If you have an art lover in your in your life, you can, you're able to buy prints, or if you're very wealthy, original art online and shipped to, you know, to where it needs to go. I would note that if you go to ravinakai.com, you can get the lovely artwork from the cover of The Book of Dragons and other artwork by Ravina as print, and they look wonderful. Mm -hmm. And also, I spent the year looking at Omar Ryan's website, that's O-M-A-R-A-R-Y-Y-A-N, and he has had some fantastic prints for sale, and I came within that. If I'd been awake at the right time of night when they went for sale, there was a couple of small originals of his that he sold, quite gorgeous as well, so I recommend those. But generally your favorite you know, fan, you know, science fiction fantasy artist, whether they be you know, Charles, Charles Vess, John Picaccio, Michael Whalen, mm -hmm. um, Julie Bell, whoever it might be, will have prints for sale. It could, could be a, a lovely gift. As long as we're mentioning that, there's another group of artists who more or, less, more or less are likely to show up at conventions than on covers. In other words, every time I go to the art show at a convention, I'm surprised by the number of, of, of talented artists there who basically uh, don't work in publishing. And I, I think they've had a hard year. I'm, I'm, a, a, an old friend of mine who is one of these artists who uh, exhibited a lot of conventions is Sarah Clemens, who has some wonderful stuff. We own a couple of pieces. And I don't know how things work out for artists and other people, uh, including some uh, dealers of handmade, I don't know, handmade weaponry or, 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 or clothing or cosplay kinds of things. Uh, a lot, and for that matter, book dealers who must have been suffering a lot for this past year simply yeah. by not having the usual uh, exposure that they have to sell their goods. Yes, and given that, I would rec recommend you do, do try to go to your local indie bookstore here in Perth and Western Australia, Stefan's Books on Murray Street is someone I'd re recommend. But across the field, I know that Dreamhaven, Greg Ketterer's store, mm -hmm. has had a, had a rough year. Uh, I am sure that there are many others and would, they would all appreciate your... And the day, the, the day we're recording this, it's the end of the day here in uh, the States. Saturday is called Small Business Saturday, which is a, a day set aside to patronize small businesses, which I think is a good idea, except I think it's a bad idea to have only one day a year when you need to patronize independent <laughs> well, businesses. I'd like to think that the kind of people, the podcaster, do listen, you know, do pursue, you know, follow mm -hmm. small press publishers, bookstores. So they are going to go to, you know, Borderlands, who, right. uh, Dreamhaven, they are going to order from Tacky, they are going to order from Small B, from Subterranean, all of whom are friends of the podcast and who are produce wonderful work and all of whom have great work out right now i mean for example although i well i've seen the text of it um subterranean have a brand new tamson muir novella coming out uh -huh. any moment now uh, and no doubt for anybody who'd been a fan of the gideon books from tamson muir would they would fall in love with that i was just sent by their 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 sorry i shouldn't go off the mic there their rather uh -huh. lovely edition of tim powers's Listen to me on unwrap something on the air or on the recording uh, of the property of the rooftop air. 
Well, here's here, here, here's something there. Beautiful. Yes, thing. there it is. Absolutely, it's a gorgeous uh, wrapped in cellophane. This is this is the difference between. Yes, this is the difference between a reviewer for Locus and a reviews editor for Locus. The reviewer for Locus gets a paperback advanced reader's copy of the properties of rooftop air that doesn't have a wrapper on it yeah, or anything. And the editor and buys he, a copy, you schmuck. Oh, well, there's that. Well, okay. Did you, uh, did, did you think that was. I mean, come on. Okay, that's true. Okay, but. but the, uh, the, okay, never mind. I, I, I'm completely. Wrong footed now, aren't you? You were really getting wound up have, there. Like, I have there's absolutely Jonathan, no he's getting all the freebie. I will say of this beautiful book, for those of you who are back when we were uh -huh. doing our and I spoke to John Burr, the property is the one that he bought the uh, David artwork for. has hmm. hanging in home. The fortune to have that. But yes, and so David, lots of things. And, and there's one David other. Lombo, whose, whose mom is Julie Bell. There you go. And I would also strongly, strongly exhort people who are out there to consider if you are giving gifts for Christmas and you want to give something long lasting, but immediately a little bit intangible and certainly something that will get where it has to go, but don't, you don't have to get it there. Consider a magazine subscription. There are a bunch of great magazines idea. in the field. Uh, mm. A number of them that I love, we, Gary and I both are strongly affiliated as everyone with the podcast knows with Locus. LocusMag.com is where you would go to subscribe to Locus. You can get the printy magazine-y thing sent to your home if that's Wish or the Super Fizzbang Digital Edition. I don't think it's called the Fizzbang Edition, but maybe it could be. Uh, I'm just checking what it costs if you want to get a digital edition from Locus.com. Hear the way that I'm just rolling that in over again. I'm going to expect okay. Liza to buy me a drink after when you go to locusmag.com slash subscribe and fork over the measly 48 bucks for a year's subscription. I mean, that's like nothing. Um, but you could also choose to subscribe to either of the three predominantly print magazines in the field, all of which I subscribe Asimov's Analog and the Magazine of Fantasy. And mm, particularly maybe right to? now, the Magazine of Fantasy Science Fiction, given the you know, events of recent times where Cherie mm. Renee Thomas pairing to become the, uh, the editor for the magazine. Interesting stuff. Um, and well, I think that one of the things that uh, that people tend to overlook is, is is the value of magazine subscriptions. I remember my brother giving me this is interesting. The first subscription I ever had was to Astounding Science Fiction, which my brother, who was all of twelve, gave to me when I was all of ten. Mm -hmm. um, and I immediately I, I read everything in it for a couple of years. It's interesting. It, it probably uh, formed my uh, Formed my taste because this was this would have been I tell you how long ago this would have been in the mid 1950s that's how long ago mm -hmm. it would have been. and I learned enough from that subscription to realize that when I paid my own money out for a subscription to a magazine it was going to be the magazine of fantasy and science fiction and not John W Campbell's Astounding which in its <laughs> mid 50s was in a weird phase <laughs> a, a, a decision in retrospect you must feel pretty solid about um, I think so I uh, my, my sense is I. Uh, there was a period, I don't know, the, the, the great historian of science fiction magazines, Mike Ashley in the UK would know this, but it seemed to me there was a period in the mid-50s when Astounding had sort of moved out of its uh, Dianetics hysteria phase and not moved entirely into something else when they were still publishing serials by Hal Clement and they were publishing uh, stories by, you know, uh, the, the usual stable of hard SF writers. But it became really clear to me that the interesting stuff was going to be going on in, in fantasy and science fiction, which, to its credit, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we talked to the outgoing and the incoming editor, has by and large not been an axe-grinding magazine. No. no. And I think that's 
if, if, if a magazine uses literary quality as, uh, or, or, or for that matter, innovation as, as, as its aesthetic, then it's always going to surprise you. And one of the things that I liked about um, fantasy and science fiction, and I've always liked about uh, is that it would surprise me. Different editors would have different priorities. The magazine, as we talked about with, uh, with Shuri and uh, with Charlie, it changes from editor to editor. Um, what happens over a period of time is that either an editor gets ossified, which I think is what happened to Campbell, or an editor changes with the times, which Gardner Dozois did brilliantly. Mm-hmm. But my, my, my argument would be that Dozois is a more rare kind of editor than Campbell. I think that could be true. Let me ask you this. We've done the off-the-cuff gift guide for Cood Street uh-huh. for 2020, and I don't have anything particularly off the top of my head to recommend you know, beyond that. There are you know, an endless list of things, a lot of which I, you know, I recommend. Probably I didn't, didn't recommend the horror novel of the year. I recommend The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones, which the whole world knows is terrific. Which I have. It looks terrific. I started it. I, it's one of those things I'm going to finish, because I, even though I'm not going to review it, because he's very good. It deals with really important issues. And of course, um, I think the other one would be was it Mexican Gothic? The um, Sylvia Moreno Garcia. Yeah, yeah. I think th- those two would be the Santa horror books. But what I was going to say was, with that mm. gift guide thing in place, and with that, since we're not, oh, I've, I don't have enough experience to go into the graphic novel side, and I don't have anything useful to say about the film and television side of things. Maybe a, a comment or two about the end of the year, because there's a chance that this could be our last regular podcast uh, until the hiatus. There may be another one. I don't know. If there is, how do we feel about 2020 in science fiction, fantasy, and horror? I mean, it started with some fireworks and it ended up with an enormous acquisition of Penguin and you know, by, by you know of Simon and Schuster. So it's been a strange year for some. And the, uh, the consi- yeah, I mean, I, I think the consolidation of mainstream publishing is something we don't. It's too early to say. It's it's. I find it unnerving. I always find that. I don't think this year is comparable to any other year. I don't think reading uh, reading patterns were completely up uh, uprooted. Are rearranged uh, books. I, books got postponed that were supposed to be out uh, this fall that are coming out next spring. Um, the conventions that normally would be the place where you hear about new books and boast about new books and uh, go to panels about new books took place virtually or not at all. And let's be honest, virtually for most of us meant not at all. It meant we got to fragments of them here and there. But um, I really only know a handful of people who either at Worldcon or World Fantasy stayed glued to their computers for three or four days as though they were in a hotel somewhere. There may be, yeah, there may yeah. be people who actually hold themselves up and pretended they were in a bar, but if, if those people were that obsessed with the convention experience, I probably don't want to talk to them anyway. Oh, uh, oh. I got to okay, say, but, hey, hey but look, if it got them through the year, Gary... Okay, that's more a power good point. to them. More power to them. But it's been a strange year. I mean, it's, it's socially, been a strange right? Year. Um, I, I, I guess one of the reasons... Here, here's an example. I, I was very, very impressed, as I've said many times, about uh, the Once in Future Witches, which I would defend years from now as being an excellent novel. It may have just seemed more important to me because it was such a kind of comfort uh, in, 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 in being well done. Um, yeah. By the same token, okay, there are two kinds of comfort reading. I was thinking about this. I will tell you why I'm thinking about this. This is an extended print. Yes. Uh, one, one of the forthcoming books I've received from Subterranean Press is uh, a big, generous anthology edited by Bill Sheehan called The Best of Elizabeth Hand. And I've pretty much read everything. Yeah. Um, and, but I started reading it again. And I was thinking, okay, 
there's a kind of comfort reading that has to do with predictability, with the content of what you're reading. For example, a, a number of people we talked to this summer, at least the number of the people I talked to, uh, discussed going back to mystery novels, novels in which the world emerges in an orderly fashion at the end, that something gets solved, something gets answers, a kind of sense of closure. That's one kind of comfort. Uh, it, it might be reading English Village Mysteries. It might be rereading E.M. Forrester. It might be rereading Heinlein Juveniles, whatever, things that make you comfortable. Second kind of comfort is when is the kind of sense I got when I picked up The Best of Elizabeth Hand, even though I knew what was in it. I started rereading one of her early stories, really, called the uh, called Last Summer at Mars Hill. And you realize a few pages in, you're in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing. Um, and that True. comfort comes, that comes from, it's, it's, it's literary comfort as opposed to epistemological comfort, if you will. So the kind of uh, literary comfort that, uh, well, th that I got from uh, The Once and Future Witches is also a kind of comfort that I got from M. John Harrison's The Sunken Land Begins to Rise Again, even though the content of that novel is very upsetting. In other words, it's a comfort True. that comes from knowing you're in competent hands. Now, this may have something to do with my being in the States, where the notion of being in competent hands <laughs> is extremely valuable. Fair enough. Fair enough. Can I say as well, actually, I'm going to do a inverse, a reverse gift guides. Okay, things to avoid. The most avoidable book of 2020, for my money, would have to be the zombie Heinlein novel, The Pursuit of the Pancara. Oh. There were two big publications. One was a Folio Society edition of Heinlein's classic Stranger in a Strange Land right. with artwork by Donato Giancola. And if you have a lot of money and if you like that artwork, then it would be a fine gift, though I think more and more and more Stranger looks like a weird period. But The Pursuit of the Pancara is something that is justifiably, I think, called of interest to scholars. And is it probably, in fact, like all of the uh, posthumous Heinlein, forgettable and unnecessary? I'm not even sure of interest to scholars is um, is, is a fair recommendation of, of interest to collectors, to Heinlein completists, and that sort of thing. Uh, I'm I'm really interested because this has to do with the work I've been doing with the University of Illinois Press on various writers. There's a sense in which you get the feeling that the the scholarly, the academic, the historical discussion of Heinlein is about where it needs to be. It doesn't need a lot more. I mean, Farrah Mendelssohn's book had a lot of new insights and a lot of very yes. useful new insights about Heinlein. Um, there was an H. Bruce Franklin novel, a novel, a nonfiction well, book uh, about Heinlein that sort of was the vanguard of, of, of attacking his libertarianism from a liberal point of view. But by and large, I don't think Heinlein is going to get a lot of discussion from now on, except among Heinlein completists. Certainly um, not for a while. I mean, I feel that, you know, sort of, first of all, I think you're completely correct. I think that uh, Farrah Mendelssohn's excellent book, The Pleasant Profession of Robert Heinlein, uh, mm -hmm. I believe it was, and which is available from all good retailers online and off, mm -hmm. Um, was a very worthwhile piece of scholarship that had useful things to say, but rather like another Beatles biography. We don't really need much beyond it. It did a thing, and there may still be something unexpected out there to do, but I'm skeptical. We've had Thank the you. we've had the astounding book, which kind of frames that era as well. Um, and I think there's a a real yearning amongst a lot of people who listen out there in the world to move on and pay attention to other things now. You know. Yeah, in, in, in terms of the fiction itself, I mean, another book, um, 
Well, there, there are two other nonfiction books which I probably should mention uh, at the end of the year. One is um, I can't. It's a visual history of science fiction fandom of the 1930s, an enormous five-pound book of slick pages reproducing fanzines of the 1930s and basically providing a, a fairly complete history. For people who are interested in early fandom, it's a, a terrific collector's item. I don't know that there's a lot original in it in terms of scholarship, yeah. but it's fascinating for that group of people, for people who are fascinated by fandom. Another book, which since I have a blurb on it, I discovered when I got the email the other day, the third volume of Jonathan Eller's biography of Ray Bradbury is fascinating precisely because it doesn't try to argue for the late Bradbury's literary relevance. It, it basically is a biography of a, of a celebrity who had, for all intents and purposes, stopped seriously writing before this picks up. It's called Bradbury Beyond Apollo. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a biography of a literary celebrity who has become a spokesperson for science fiction, even though he never really liked science fiction that much, and <laughs> had, had stopped writing it 50 years earlier. Um, it's, it's kind of a fascinating pop culture artifact, and it has a lot to say about the way American popular culture in particular thought of science fiction during the late Bradbury. Um, so there, there, there is this kind of... Uh, historical sense, cultural history sense, which is yeah. still there. I think it's still there with Heinlein. I think it's still there with Bradbury. I think it's still relatively unexamined when it comes to people like, I don't know, Theodore Sturgeon. But that's cultural history. That's not literary history. And the literary history of Heinlein, I think, is, like I said, over. I think the literary history of Bradbury is pretty much over. I don't think there's much left to discover about him. Yeah, and I think there'll be a little bit of Le Guin and we'll move on there. So let me ask you this. So we've talked about our unofficial gift guide that we had no preparation mm -hmm. for and repeated other things we've said earlier in the year. We've talked a little bit, but not in great depth about what we thought about the state of the year. Because I, honestly, I think the truth is, listeners, and why you may hear about this, we're still working it out. I have introductions Thanks and essays so, yeah. to write. Gary has an, uh, You have an essay to write. Um, I'm well aware of that. So we have that. So we're still thinking about it. And then there's a question which might take us out on what's a shorter episode. And that is this question right now, Gary. If you're looking ahead for your pre-orders for the first part of 2020, are there any particular books you're forward to? You know, so, for example, if I were pre-ordering, to ponder that question thrown at you, I would mm -hmm. be pre-ordering the Jolly Clark book, Master of the Gin, .com. wonderful. Mm -hmm. I would be pre-ordering uh, the new uh, Sarah Pinsker book, her, her sophomore effort, We Are We All Have Satellites, we are, we are, which looks mm -hmm. very interesting. And I, w I in fact, I have pre-ordered, just so I can have it because I've already read it, um, a desolation called Peace by Arcady Martin. Of course, that's says, pretty much the, 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 the well. The, those are pretty much the ones that I recognize. I mean, obviously, there are things that I will always read when they come out. There's a new K.J. Parker novella uh, uh, coming out sometime soon. The big, the big shot. No, something like that. something like that. It's it's, it's right there. Let me see. Um, <laughs> oh, okay, listeners, the big, the big you're getting store, a high quality work here at Cood Street. Another one of these subterranean. Uh, uh, the thing is, I don't pre-order things because things come to me in advance, as uh, as I've mentioned to you. There are things I'm reading now that are coming out uh, in March. I've got I mean, it maybe has has to do with things being bumped back in the schedule, but I've got a couple of books that are scheduled for June, although I can't recall off the top of my head what any of them are. The um, The Best of Elizabeth Hand, I think, is a March book or maybe a February book, and the February book. Um, so it, it, it seems to me that we're in that period of the year when books that are actually appearing in January and February, unless they've been rescheduled, are 
it's 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 normally the nadir of the year in terms of number of titles published. Well, yeah, I mean, well, one book which we didn't talk about it, but one book which I know you would have read this year was William's novel Comet Weather, which came yeah, out in Blackthorn Winter, which is coming out in yeah. January, so the perfect time to pre-order that for your New Year's reading. Um, I'm not over-huckstering stuff that I've done, but novellas that are Fireheart Tiger, the album of Dr. Yeah. Moreau by Daryl Gregory, and I'm gonna look. I got to tell you, pre-order the album of Dr. Moreau if you're interested in. Sounds, I don't know, sounds great. It is. I love stuff like. I mean, do you know what the story basically is? It's it's a NCIS Las Vegas episode set in a hotel in the nineties where a boy band are being investigated for the murder of their manager, <laughs> but the but the the uh, boy band happen to be basically animal human hybrids that are like escapees from uh, Moreau's Island, the members of the boy band. Uh, and I swear, every time I read that thing, I shed a tear. It's terrific. <laughs> It's, it's it's the best Daryl Gregory, and we're getting great you know blurbs for it. I strongly, strongly, strongly recommend. It sounds it sounds like stuff. what what was the Daryl Gregory novella that dealt with survivors of of, of monsters and serial killers? Uh, that, I forget too, but it was. But it was, I mean, it was she, she, he's very good at writing about what we academics like to call the monster, uh, which is yeah. not quite the same thing as monster. Well, I will tell me. you one book I've mm -hmm. I've been reading, I've been dipping into and out of. It's not due until May. Um, is Joanne Harris's Honeycomb, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. with lots of illustrations by Charles Vess. I've, um, and I know that some of the illustrations are absolutely full-color, gorgeous illustrations, which are not in the advanced reading copy, which frustrates me, um, because it's going to be one of these things. And, and, and Joanna Harris is not known as a fantasy writer, I guess. She's known mostly for the novel Shakalot, which was made into that wonderful movie. Um, but it is a kind of collection of stories that add up to a kind of novel about a fantasy world involving the lacewing king and the bits i've read i've been dipping in and out of it are, are, are terrific so uh that's something i certainly would be looking forward to during the new year I, i'm not basing this at all by the way on having looked at um the locust forthcoming list because when i do that i get very very nervous but blackthorn winter um the African, a free download, which I think we may have mentioned before, maybe not, um, which is completely available from brittlepaper.com is an anthology called African Futurism. Ten original by um, mostly writers that most of us don't know about, even though I checked and almost all of them had been profiled by Jeff Ryman in his uh, Tor.com series of profiles of 100 African science fiction writers. It makes a very, it, it includes an, uh, a Nadia Korofor story, which is actually pretty funny, um, and makes an interesting argument, the first anthology as argument I've seen, for the notion that African futurism is not the same thing as Afrofuturism. Okay. And it makes a convincing argument. One other book that I'm really looking at is Blackwater's Sister by Zench, which is due out in May, and I've read uh -huh. a description of it. I've, I'm going to... Anything yes, we have. Um, let me let me mention one other book because I was surprised. It took me a while to get into it, and it turned out to be better and better as I got into it. And it's not next. It's not due next year, but I don't even know if it's available worldwide. Um, which is I have to look up the author's name. Really, it's 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 the wall. It's um, oh by Gautam Bhatia. I think Gautam Bhatia. Yeah, P yes. published which, by which Harper is available. You, you can absolutely get it, it online available. right now. Oh yes, 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 yes. Okay. 
And is it, I think it's a, de- a debut science fiction novel out of India. I think maybe from Hachette, India. But I think digital copies are available. So you can get it, you can grab it, you can read it. And it comes highly recommended, as does um, Summit Basu's Chosen Spirit. So, but uh-huh. setting that aside, I'm now going to huckster for about a minute and a half. which So you can skip ahead the next 90 seconds, two minutes if you want to. But I had three books out, at least two of which were not kicked around by the... So, I worked on Made to Order for my friends at Polaris back in March uh-huh. uh, or April. It's a 14-story science fiction anthology about robots. And I've got to be honest, I love it a great deal. I'm very proud of it. I know that it got disappointing sales, uh, partly because it came out right when the panic hit. But if you have somebody you think might be interested, I would recommend that. There's you said the Book of Dragon. Way, you said a 14-story science fiction anthology i thought maybe it, it's really tall and that's why it didn't sell too well In, who knows maybe you couldn't see it there were, but it is out there physically digitally um there's gonna be a japanese edition of it it has terrific stories i mean I, I feel guilty you know picking them out if you want to go to to tour.com though you can sample the vina jimin prasad story that she did for me and that's on there and it's great i love it it's one of my favorite stories of the um, I also edited the Book of Dragons. Now, I can't mm-hmm. take any story set of that from that for my year's best because they're all fantasy, but I have to say, I genuinely, genuinely think it's a pretty solid book and it looks great. And Voyager has done a beautiful job presenting it. You mentioned that it makes a nice it's gift object. The artwork and I think astonished. it totally does. Very mm-hmm. proud of it. And finally, a book that I feel has sort of dropped into nothing uh, because it came out in September is Year's Best Science Fiction, Volume 1, which Joe Monty and at Saga Press, who are wonderful. They're just dealing with this whole merger right now. But this book is the first, hopefully, there will be a second one. I'm working right now. But if there's ever going to be a third, we need there to be sales on the first. So Just I'm a question hoping... about the, since we yeah. mentioned it, but we didn't really talk about it, the Year's Best Science Fiction, unlike your previous series, is only science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, did that feel constricting or liberating because i could see on the one hand not having to worry about fantasy stories would mean i have a much broader field to choose from on the other hand i could see where there are stories which you know are on the margins that might have been in a fantasy and science fiction book and maybe shouldn't be in a science fiction only book i'd say what it is in some ways it's a little bittersweet i love fantasy and i love science fiction and all points in between Uh i have used doing a, a science fiction and fantasy book as an excuse to fit all the points in between into a, an anthology before, and that's a, a pleasure to be able to do that. And there have been some wonderful fantasy stories published this year, and truly wonderful. However, there is something about digging down and being able to look at how we're redefining what science fiction is that's really satisfying. And I think this is a great time to be doing it as a reader, because I think science fiction itself is once again finding its feet again. It's looking through the um, through the, the the voices of you know younger writers, people who are at their start of the careers, science mm. fi- and and then older readers writers who are looking to process that into what they're doing because that's a natural part of the process. Mm. I think what you see those ideas are having science fiction refocus, look at different things, deal with different issues, um, broaden the way that it looks at what it does, and I find being able to focus on that is really refreshing. Frankly, um, I, I think that I can see uh, that it would be. Um, it, it just strikes me um, as an odd time to be separating these things. And uh, we've talked about this before. Back when David Hartwell was doing a year's best fantasy and a year's best science fiction, that was by way of making an argument that the wall needs to remain up between genres. And now, now we're in an era in which 
it's you can have a science fiction story with something in it that might be supernatural or might not be. Um, and in other words, I don't think people draw those barriers the way they they once did. And I I find that fascinating. But I mean, no, but I, I think you're right. But I think then that gives you the space to ask, well, then what is science? Has what we think science fiction has changed? Is a story yeah. like Yoon Ha Lee's The Mermaid Astronaut over at Benicia Kai's, which tells of a mermaid that wants to leave her planet and travel on spaceships, you know, uh, how does that fit into this thing? I realize that most likely Yoon themselves was not predominantly interested in beyond what they were doing with their story. But yeah, that story I mean, itself is a piece of this mosaic that we're looking at. Well, I mean, I think the days are past when we could say safely, which I think we probably have at some point in the last decade of these podcasts, that conventional wisdom, that if you have a science fiction story that has a supernatural element in it, a dragon shows up or a ghost shows up, that no matter how much science is in the story, the supernatural element makes it a fantasy. However, if the reverse is true, if you have a ghost story, let's say that has a lot of scientific equipment and we could take uh, Richard Matheson's Hell House, all these stories that deal with scientific investigations of the paranormal and so forth and so on. No matter how much science you pile into a ghost story, it's still a, it's still a ghost story. It's still a fantasy. In other words, a single fantasy element contaminates a science fiction story, but a single science fiction element doesn't contaminate a fantasy. The thing is, the as we broaden our perspective on fiction, does that can be true? That's my yeah. point. That's, that's are, I know. Are we at the stage where the Iron Dragon's daughter is now more science fiction? Mm -hmm. That's an excellent example. example. But I think for the moment, we're a battle, son. We've done one. Well, we've got, a lot of we've got a lot of stuff to think about. And by the time we do another one of these, we are going to be taking a midwinter solstice break at some point at some point um, i'm not exactly sure when it'll depend i mean we've done it very uh firmly in previous years but i will say since i'm going to be away from my day job more we may be more flexible we'll see what we can sort of think up uh i think having dealt with our holiday gift guide at a time when hopefully it can be useful um, we may or may not do some kind of year and review -y thing or not, but we'd seem to do that a we lot. Could do, so we, we'll we, we could do it if we prepare for it a little bit and maybe have a guest or two on to talk about it. He wants to talk about it. Yeah, who wants it? Uh, that's all we're going to do. Okay, well, on that note, Gary Wolf, thank you for 2020 if we don't get back. It's been well, a hell of a year. It's been a wonderful year. We, we set a record. We may have set some kind of record for most consecutive daily podcasts, at least in our field, if not ever. Completely yeah. insane. Under how many how many episodes did we do back to back? Did you ever count them up? Oh, we, we, we did the hundred. The first sequence was a hundred and three or four in a row, and then uh -huh. we went off and a short break. Came back for another forty or fifty, I think, which were pretty much back to. Yeah. And then you know, and look, and I honestly, I'll foreshadow. I wouldn't rule out revisiting that territory in the new. Uh, I think a lot of people kick out of it. I do. I do wonder if daily will always. I think of its time. We were all locked in, and it just felt like a good felt like some some way of reconnecting with people. We'll see. We shall it see, could how, see how the year it, goes. You know, and I also want to thank you for the podcast you did without me that I got to listen to as a listener, which I greatly same, enjoyed. Same thing is true here as well. Uh, so, but 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 we're back, and we're back to our usual habit of annoying people with rambling. So, yeah. Um, and I guess one last we might be able to preempt a little. I don't know if you're. Going I'd like to thank every one of the 150 plus readers, writers, artists, creators who made time of their time available to talk to us. And I'd like to th thank every one of you out there who are our listeners for spending the time letting us prattle in your ears. 
I have nothing to add to that except I'll, I'm holding up my glass of Pinot Noir now. I'll, I'll drink to that, and I'll drink to all of our, our guests and all of our listeners. And, and until the next time, then, this has been the Coon Street Podcast.